When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When white people tend to think about racism, they think of it as intentional acts of harm against people of color. And so, and so if somebody says, hey, you know, you, what you just said or did there was like a little bit racist, they get very offended because they think that that means they're a reprehensible, hateful person. But the fact of the matter is people are committing microaggressions all, all the time. They're committing acts of racism all the time and they often don't know it. So, so yeah, so good people can and do commit acts of racism. That was Dr. Monica Williams on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoengrun, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We're thrilled to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education here at Psychologists Off the Clock because we really value our own continuing education. And I know, Jill, you've participated in a number of Praxis events. I have. Praxis is my favorite. I think probably the most memorable was when I participated in an ACT boot camp after I'd already been learning and doing ACT for about 15 years. And I still got so much out of the training. I have a memory of Steve Hayes jumping off of a phone book to demonstrate how small your committed action can be. And sometimes I'll bring up that memory and use it with my clients. And that's probably from 10 years ago. The Praxis also continues to evolve and change over time. It integrates new therapies as they come out. It has trainings in compassion-focused therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy and radically open DBT. If you go to our website at offtheclockpsych.com and visit our sponsorship page, you can get a coupon for $25 off. So check it out. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot P-O-T-C. ZocDoc.com P-O-T-C. Small behaviors can make a big difference in our health and well-being. 
Most of us work so many hours each week that we should think about how our work habits affect our bodies. Being able to stand sometimes while I work has made a huge difference for me. Uplift Desks has created high-quality office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. My Uplift Standing Desk allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me recharge to change positions when I get tired in the afternoon. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash P-O-T-C for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order. This is Debbie. We have for you today an episode I recorded with Dr. Monica Williams, who is a psychologist who studies mental health disparities and race. She has a book out on microaggressions, and she is an expert on trauma, just in general, but also as it relates to race and racial trauma. One of the things I talked to uh, Monica about off the air was how she too has done some things in the past that she considers microaggressions. And I, you know, Jill, it was actually to me really reassuring to hear her say that, that she's a real expert. She's a woman of color and she too has done things that are considered microaggressions because I have too. Yeah, of course. I think it's so validating and it also really sends the point home that none of us is immune to this, that you can't say, you know, oh, no, I'm not a racist. I would never do that. That, you know, we all are guilty of committing microaggressions. Yeah, I mean, I think often that they're a matter of maybe being oblivious about something or something just kind of slips out without thinking about it. But the fact that you're having that impact on someone is a problem. I know the term microaggression can be controversial because that word micro sounds like it's minimizing the importance of what's happened. Like, oh, it's just a small act of racism, so it doesn't count. When, of course, that isn't true. And in fact, I think the word micro in some ways is helpful because it really speaks to the covert nature of these kinds of acts. Yeah, that's right. They tend to be insidious and covert and... They can still be a big problem and have a big impact. And I think that one thing that can happen then is that people can minimize it or deny it, just like you said, where they say, oh, well, that wasn't a big deal. I didn't mean it that way. I agree. And and really, you know, as she recommends, starting with that self-assessment and being willing to be uncomfortable. I think, you know, we've done quite a number of episodes around different elements of these issues recently. And the one thing they all have in common is that we all have to be willing to do the work. And that means feeling uncomfortable. That means potentially making mistakes. That means admitting that you are someone who engages in microaggressions and doesn't realize it. Um, You know, that that really is the first step before we can move the needle for positive change. Well, we really appreciate this interview with Dr. Monica Williams. We hope you enjoy. 
Dr. Monica Williams is a board-certified licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in cognitive behavioral therapies. She's an associate professor in the School of Psychology at the University of Ottawa, Canada Research Chair in Mental Health Disparities, and Director of the Laboratory for Culture and Mental Health Disparities. She's also the Clinical Director of the Behavioral Wellness Clinic in Toland, Connecticut. Dr. Williams completed her undergraduate studies at MIT and UCLA. She received her doctoral degree in clinical psychology from the University of Virginia. She was an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine in the Department of Psychiatry for four years, where she worked with Dr. Edna Foa, who's a world-renowned expert on OCD and PTSD. She was also a director of the Center for Mental Health Disparities at the University of Louisville. Dr. Williams has published over 100 peer review articles, book chapters, and scientific reports with a focus on anxiety-related conditions and cultural considerations. She was named one of the top 25 thought leaders in PTSD by PTSD Journal, and she frequently contributes to the public scientific discourse as a media expert. She's been featured on PBS, NPR, The New York Times, and she has a blog on psychology today called Culturally Speaking which is fantastic. You should check it out. She is co-author, along with Daniel Rosen and Jonathan Cantor, of the book Eliminating Race-Based Mental Health Disparities, Promoting Equity and Culturally Responsive Care Across Settings. Her newest book, which we're going to talk all about today, is called Managing Microaggressions, Addressing Everyday Racism in Therapeutic Spaces. Dr. Williams, I'm so happy to have you here today to talk to me about microaggressions, racial trauma, and mental health disparity. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. I know you're busy and that, um, you know, this is really important. I think timing, there's a lot of talk right now about these topics. And so I'm very grateful that you're here. I imagine you've, you've been making a number of appearances recently. I have. It's been it's been like a very crazy, crazy busy time right now. Um, everything that just sort of exploded after George Floyd has really brought a lot of these issues to the forefront. So every every all of my professional organizations and um, you know uh, all the pe- people that I work with and my therapists, my clients strangers off the street, they all like have questions for me and want me to help in some way, which of course I want to do, but you know, I feel pulled in a lot of directions right now. I imagine. Yeah. I mean, you've been doing this work for a long time and I mean, the good news is that all of a sudden, you know, you have a big megaphone. Yeah. There's a lot of interest right now. I mean, in a way that I've I've never seen before. I mean, usually when there's, you know, something in the media or, you know, some police violence or something, I'll get, you know, a few calls to do interviews and then it, it dies down again. Uh, but uh, there definitely seems to be some momentum going right now. Yeah, yeah, which is great. And I think today we're going to talk generally about, you know, microaggressions and racism. And we're also going to talk quite a bit about how this shows up in our field of mental health. I want to start, your new book is on microaggressions. And I wanted to just start with a basic kind of understanding of what that means just for listeners who may not be familiar with that. What are microaggressions? Oh, microaggressions are small acts of racism. I mean, to put it bluntly, um, basically people behave in racist ways that they're not always aware of or conscious of, but the person on the receiving end um, usually does feel the impact of that in some way. And people who 
who experience microaggressions often spend a lot of time and energy trying to figure out like what the other person meant by their behavior or like, did they mean to be racist? Um, do they treat everyone that way? So uh, it can cause people's wheels to spin um, trying to, to figure it out and make sense of it. Um, but often the person who commits a microaggression is completely unaware uh, that they've done anything. And this can be a real problem, for example, in, in therapy sessions where therapists might be committing microaggressions against clients and have no idea. Yeah. And they're, I think, you know, they're, they're insidious and these kind of small exchanges. I get, I get what you're saying that the, the emotional energy it takes to kind of think it through and wait, what, what does that mean? That that takes up kind of time and effort for people who receive them? Yeah, absolutely. It takes up a lot of time and energy. And um, and usually when people of color bring up that they've been microaggressed against, particularly if it's to the perpetrator, the other person quickly denies it. And so then that person is left, left feeling like gaslit, like, okay, I know something happened and now this person saying it didn't happen and that I misconstrued it or that I didn't know what I was talking about. So that, at that point, the person has like two choices to make sense out of what happened. Either the other person did do an act of racism and they're not going to admit it, or they didn't and it was just the victim's fault. So as therapists, we never want to be blaming the victim for things that happened to them. We know, uh, we know how that goes. And, but unfortunately, that's the experience of so many people of color. Yeah. And it, I, it sounds like it ends up feeling very confusing confusing. You, um, your book really focuses on racial microaggressions, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Are there other kinds of microaggressions that can happen? Oh, many kinds of microaggressions. So anybody um, who has a stigmatized identity can experience a microaggression in line with that identity. So, uh, so there are LGBTQ microaggressions. Um, there are ableist microaggressions. Those are microaggressions that may be um, committed against people with disabilities. Um, and gender microaggressions are very common as well. Yeah, I can think of a few of those I've received. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, what are some of the, the categories? Um, in your book, you list several. Could you just give a few examples of the, the categories of microaggressions that you've seen? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, so there's microaggressions where a person's kind of their, their racial reality is denied. So we might think of these as more like colorblind microaggressions where people's, where, where maybe someone of color is trying to talk about an important racial issue and they're silenced by another person that says, oh, uh, there's only one race, the human race, and I don't see color. And, you know, that's not important. Uh, so, so those, that's one type of microaggression. Would, would yeah. all, if someone says all lives matter, do you think that's a form of that? Oh, absolutely. That's, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's so. basically saying, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make a point that black lives matter and you're totally negating that by saying all lives matter. So, um, so yeah, that, that's definitely a microaggression. I mean, and in fact, I don't even call that a microaggression. I just call that racism because most people who say that they know, you know, at this point that that's not okay, but yeah. they say it anyway. So I'm not even, I'm not even going to put that in the microaggression category anymore. Okay. That's just a straight it's up just aggression. Straight, yeah. <laughs> straight up racist aggression. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Some other categories. 
Yeah, well, one category that people often don't think about is what we might call an environmental microaggression. And so these are microaggressions that are just sort of somebody already put something in place that's microaggressive and we're all just um, seeing it and experiencing it without anyone having to do anything. So, for example, like a Confederate monument or, you know, a high school um, mascot that, um, you know, that has a, a disrespectful depiction of a Native American. These would be environmental microaggressions. Or even if I am walking into the medical school and there's a huge hall of framed pictures of all the presidents of the medical school, they're all white men right? So that's a microaggression too, because that's telling people of color and women that, you know, that these leadership positions are not for you. There was one of the, I, I got my PhD at Harvard and there was, I don't know if it's still there. I haven't been there in so many years, but there was a conference room that had all the tenured retired professors. Mm, And at the very end, there were one or two women, but it was all white men otherwise. Um, Oh, exactly. And how did that make you feel seeing that? I mean, it was, yeah, like it just, it definitely made me feel like there was this club that I, you know, it made me feel there's this club that I wasn't a part of, kind of like an outsider. And I mean, it was striking. Yeah. And I bet you most of the guys didn't even notice. Yeah. Could be. Yeah. I bet you most men didn't even notice. And that's the thing about the microaggressions when you're on the receiving end, boy, you notice, but yeah. Yeah. Um, as a person of color, you've experienced, I'm sure, many of them. And I'm, I'm imagining that your personal experience is maybe behind your passion for this work. Um, yes. I, yeah, I receive microaggressions pretty regularly. I don't know, you know, that it's so much worse than, than other people of color. Um, I mean, we, we all experience them. Um, but it, it is part of what motivates me to study it. Honestly, though, I think the main, the main reason that I'm interested in studying it is because it, it becomes a barrier to care. And so um, a big thrust of the work that I do is making treatment accessible to everyone. And when people of color go to get help, and if they experience a microaggression, like the first time that they're in the clinic, they're not going to want to come back. And maybe they have something that is very treatable. Maybe we have like a very good short-term CBT approach that could really like eliminate their suffering, but then they just never get it for the rest of their lives because um, they felt discriminated against when when they tried to get help. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to talk a bit more about that in the interview because I think that's really important is how how that shows up in mental health. Um, I'm wondering, before we get into that, if you could give us, do you have an example or two of microaggressions that you personally have experienced that you're willing to share with us? I think it makes it more personal if we kind of hear a real life example. Oh yeah. So many. It's like this, it's so many, it's even like hard to think of one. But, um, but I mean, I remember an example where I was invited to give a talk um, as part of a, um, a training for other therapists. And I, um, you know, I was all dressed up for my talk, had my, my briefcase. I was in the elevator going up to the top floor for the talk, there was another man on the elevator who was similarly dressed. Uh, and, and there was one of the conference organizers in the elevator. And she turned to the white man and said, oh, you must be one of the conference speakers. Um, and then proceeded to have a very like engaging conversation with him about how happy she was he was there and what he was going to present. And I was just standing there like, okay. So you <laughs> think I was a conference presenter, you know? Yeah, um, you were just ignored in that conversation. Yeah, completely ignored. And then starting to feel more and more awkward as I realized that once we get to the top, 
and there's the check-in, this person's going to realize that I'm a presenter too. And she's going to realize that she totally dissed me. And that's going to be awkward too. Did you so, say anything? No, I didn't say anything. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, you know, what am I going to say at that point? Like, hey, you forgot me. <laughs> right. Um, it's so awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Very awkward. And I imagine that did not feel good to you. No, it didn't feel good because it made me feel like, okay, people like me aren't seen as, you know, competent, professional people that educate others. Yeah. And I think that was kind of, that was another category that shows up often is just making assumptions about people's roles and, you know, assuming certain things about their economic status or their professional. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I, I mean, I noticed that when I go out, I feel like I have to look a certain way because if I just go out with scruffy hair and sweatpants, people kind of look at me like, um, like they think I'm a criminal, like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't know. Um, I just don't, I just don't get treated with respect at all. And so, so even just like the burden of getting ready to leave the house, I have to think about, um, how people may perceive me just on the basis of my race. Yeah. That illustrates to me as a white woman, I think a privilege because I, you know, go outside in my sweatpants and, you know, ponytail and don't think twice about it. And that's, yeah, that's a difference. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even, you know, places I've lived, I haven't felt comfortable, you know, jogging in my neighborhood because I'm worried that someone's going to think I don't belong. And mm-hmm. next thing I know, the police or neighborhood watch will be pulling up behind me like, oh, are you lost? <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, which no, has I never just... happened to me for the record, yes. you know? I mean, yeah, this that's really, to me. yeah, to me. <laughs> that's powerful to hear about that. Um, thank you for sharing those, those examples. Um, so something that in your, in your book I thought was really interesting is, just what's behind the microaggressions? Because I think, as you said earlier, sometimes they get overlooked and people think, oh, I just, you know, it was a faux pas. It was just a minor mistake. It was no big deal. And and he used to say, you know, quote, good people. I say quote because I don't really think people are all good or all bad. But, you know, people who are, they're not like, maybe they even care about racism. They're maybe well-meaning in a lot of ways or whatever, that they can certainly be capable of committing microaggressions. I mean, I'm sure I have, everyone can, Um, but that there are really deeper roots to microaggressions. So can you talk a little bit about intention and, you know, are microaggressions always offensive or can they sometimes just be like no big deal? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, And certainly people of color and and other people who experience microaggressions, we tend to experience them so much, you kind of learn to shrug them off, but that doesn't mean they're benign. And, uh, and it doesn't give a pass to people who are doing them because they can, you know, affect people. Um, they can cause anxiety, depression, sleep problems, um, and low self-esteem. So they should not be dismissed, even though people who experience them might often say, oh, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. <laughs> and and it is really racism and intention doesn't matter. Um, and, and this is, I think, uh, part of the problem is that when white people tend to think about racism, they think of it as intentional acts of harm against people of color. And so, and so if somebody says, hey, you know, you 
what you just said or did there was like a little bit racist. They get very offended because they think that that means they're a represent, reprehensible, hateful person. But the fact of the matter is people are committing microaggressions all, all the time. They're committing acts of racism all the time, and they often don't know it. So, so yeah, so good people can and do commit acts of racism. And so it's important to get past intention because if you perseverate on intention, you actually never get to the harm that was done and you can't repair the harm if you get defensive and say, oh, I didn't mean it. Yeah. And I think it just shuts down the conversation. Like people want to think, oh, I'm, you know, we like to categorize ourselves or something like, oh, I'm not one of those people who's racist. But when you when you think of it that way, like this all or nothing thing, you know, either you're doing these like blatant, like right. overt races or nothing. It's like, you, there's no room for growth there or to take a, a look at what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, we all make mistakes and we all need to learn how to move through those mistakes in um, a functional way. What are your thoughts about, um, so let's just say that you're, confronted with a microaggression like someone has the courage to just say to you hey you know you said this and when you said that I felt you know this way and that was a microaggression like what would you what would your recommendation be for a better way to respond to something like that yeah I I think that you know we actually already have the skill set to respond properly but you know the defenses kick in so fast we forget to use what we already know so it's like really basic you just say oh wow I'm really sorry I had no idea that that landed on you that way can you please I mean and if you don't understand why it's a microaggression say can you please explain to me why that was racist I, it would really help me I'd really like to know I don't want to I don't want to treat you or anybody that way and um you know, and, and then just say, oh, thank you, I'm, you know, and, and then move on. You, you don't want to, the other thing, the other problem people do sometimes is sometimes they just like keep apologizing forever. And that's no good either, because then that is making the person who experienced the microaggression sort of the emotional caretaker of the person who committed it. And that's not a great place to be in either. So you just want to kind of deal with it just the way you would deal with any other small thing that you did that wasn't very cool. Like if somebody said, hey, you know, you, you left your backpack in the hall and I tripped over it, it would be the same thing. Like, oh, geez, I'm sorry. I won't do that again. I, I didn't even realize it was there. Right. Yeah. You wouldn't keep bringing it up a million times or, yeah. But <laughs> the acknowledgement, like I made a mistake. Let me learn something from that. Thank you. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but, the, but the most common response is, oh, I didn't mean it that way at all. Um, or that's not what I meant, or even like, how could you, how could you say that about me? You know, these, these defenses. Yeah. Um, this desire to like explain it and kind of clear your, your name or something, but right. that doesn't really get you anywhere. Nope. It, that, that doesn't solve the problem. That just probably confirms to the person who experienced the microaggression that you, you know, that you really are prejudiced um, and that they can't have a safe conversation with you about these kinds of things. Yeah. And I think that's so invalidating and gets back to that idea of people feeling gaslit by it. Like, oh no, I, that's, this is in your head. And I think that's a good segue because I wanted to talk about, you know, I think white people, including mental health clinicians, often sort of underestimate the psychological toll that uh, racism, even these, you know, microaggressions, kind of these um, 
day-to-day interactions take on people of color over time. Um, you, you talked a little bit about this, but can you say a bit more about how these impact people psychologically? Right. So, you know, so a lot of people, particularly, for example, African-Americans, they're often raised in homes where their parents teach them about the realities of racism from an early age to prepare and protect them from what they may experience. Um, but not, not all families do this. So, uh, and, and not all kids listen. <laughs> so, you know, so when young people kind of get out into the world and they, and they start experiencing microaggressions, um, either they'll recognize them for what they are, like, ah, that's, that's one of those racist things, not about me, or they don't know what to make of it and they internalize it. And they're like, oh, gee, you know, I'm, I find myself like I'm always wrong. I'm always left out of things. People are always looking down on me. There must be something wrong with me. And, um, and then that, inf- that aff- affects a person's self-esteem. Um, they may try to compensate in a lot of ways. They may use harmful ways of coping like substances or, um, you know, or risky behaviors, uh, they, they may engage in, in, you know, any number of unhelpful ways to deal with their misinterpretation of all the microaggressions they're experiencing. And, um, and that, that's very problematic for people. They may end up with what we call internalized racism, where they start to believe these negative things about their um, ethnic racial group uh, and may even want to distance themselves from that group. They may hate the skin that they're in try to look different and act differently so that um, they can feel like they're an exception. And that's mm-hmm. a lot of work. Yeah, it sounds exhausting. And you're not going to succeed. You, you know, if you're black, nobody's going to be like, okay, so he's got the right clothes and the right car and the right dialect. So we'll just pretend he's not black. It's not going to happen. We're thrilled to be partnered with Jill Stoddard. Her fabulous book, Be Mighty, is offering a book club. And what I'm really excited about in terms of the book club is that sometimes I read books, but then I just leave it there and I never actually apply what the book teaches us. And Jill, I think your book club is an opportunity for our listeners to get a really efficient way to start putting those principles into practice. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's through a company called High Tide, and it's a four-week virtual book club that starts on November 1st. And they're basically bite-sized skills to be able to take what you learn when you read the book and apply it in real life in a really efficient manner. And if you sign up, you get to have two live Q&As with me. That's awesome. And if you go to our sponsorship page on Psychologist Off the Clock, you can get 15% off. We're also affiliates with Dr. Rick Hansen's online neurodharma program and his Foundations of Wellbeing programs. And you can find out more about them at our website, offtheclockpsych.com, where you'll get a $40 discount. A lot of your work is on the lack of access to high quality mental health care. So here, you know, people are experiencing all this and it does take a toll, but then, you know, it's it's harder for people of color to have access to quality mental health care, and that's pretty well established. Um, so in your new book, you write specifically about, you know, the microaggressions in therapy and how clinician behavior sometimes has a big consequence in terms of people feeling engaged in therapy. What if we talk more specifically about the context of therapy, what are some of the kinds of things that you see going on that are problematic? 
Well, I think the biggest problem is that a lot of therapists don't feel comfortable talking about race, ethnicity, and culture at all. And, um, and this is a big problem because a lot of times when people are coming in, they may be coming in because part of, maybe part of what they're dealing with is problems around race or racism, or maybe they're, they're needing um, to find a way to uh, feel like they fit into Western culture. Maybe their parents are immigrants and, and their values are, are confusing and different. Or, um, or maybe they, they have um, cultural values that are important to them that they want to find a way to hang on to despite maybe pressure to behave in or adopt a more Western way of thinking. So these are some examples of, of things that, that clients um, may be struggling with. And if the therapist can't even talk about these issues with the client in a comfortable way, then they're not going to get their needs met. Um, so uh, so that, that client's going to feel like, well, this person can't help me with what I came in for. And, um, you know, and there's no point for them to continue to be seen or they're going to continue to come, but they're not going to really, they're not going to talk about what's really important to them. Yeah, I guess. It seems like maybe, especially if it's a white therapist, that they they might avoid it or shut the conversation or just not understand it. I mean, and I know another problem is that there aren't enough clinicians of color to go around because one solution is like, okay, find a clinician of color, um, but that's not always the case. And I don't know. Yeah. What are your thoughts around that? Would you recommend well, I think if somebody, if they're specifically needing to be seen because of, of issues related to race and culture, I would tend to recommend that they try to find a therapist in their own ethnic group. But we know that because there just, there aren't enough, I mean, there aren't enough people of color that make it through the psychology pipeline for a whole host of other racist uh, reasons, it's hard to find that person. So... Uh, every therapist needs to be equipped to work with people in this way. Um, and so, and there are, there are plenty of white therapists who do a great job with um, clients of color around all of these issues. It's often just a matter of motivation and training, but it can be hard to find them if you're a client, you don't even know what to look for, you know? So, so I would say like your best bet is to just, if you know, not knowing how to really <laughs> suss this out as a client, your best bet is to try to find somebody, someone from your own ethnic group, or if you can't just, you know, somebody of color, hoping that they will have the skills needed to help you. But that's not even a guarantee because even therapists of color, we're, we're trained in, you know, in very kind of sort of Eurocentric approaches. And so um, therapists of color may or may not know how to, how to navigate that competently. Well, and that seems, there's something about that too that seems like it lets people, lets clinicians off the hook a little too easily. If you say, well, just find one of your own background. It's like, yeah. no, no, we need to all be more working toward being more competent. You know, I don't know if we ever really fully get there, but toward being more competent in these areas so that we can provide high quality care to someone who, you know, has a different background than us. Um yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's not going to be long before uh, like America is half people of color. Uh, right now, half of all births are children of color. Half of all children are children of color. So we if we want to be able to serve uh, everybody that needs help, we need to know how to how to work competently with, with everyone. 
Yeah. And as you say, you don't know, you, you find someone online maybe or through your insurance or a clinic, you look at their webpage or whatever you show up. You don't really know until you get there this person's going to be a good fit, which is always true. But I think especially in the case of this, it's like you don't really know how the person's going to respond until you start having these conversations. Yeah. What recommendations would you have for, you know, mental health providers, especially white ones like myself who maybe really care about this and want to do whatever we can to improve quality mental health care for people of color? Yeah, well, I would say step one is going to be sort of a fearless self-assessment to determine if you um, are are comfortable and qualified working with people um, around these issues. So one of the first things I ask people is, have you had any graduate training? Was there any training offered in your graduate program around culture and diversity? You would hope and think that that would be a no-brainer and the answer would be yes for everyone. It's not. Um, Which is disturbing. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So, I mean, I graduated in 2007 and we didn't have any classes um, focused on dealing with um, diverse populations. And it was supposedly integrated into all our classes, which just meant that it wasn't in anything. So um, so most of the training that I got, I just had to teach myself. And so I know that there's a whole generation of psychologists that didn't get any training. And I know even now, even though it's required, some programs are doing a great job and some programs are not because I've gotten desperate calls from grad students in other programs begging me to come and do trainings because they're not getting anything. Um, so, so that's the first question, like, have you had any formal training? And then if not, okay, so what have you done to fill that gap? Have you, have you gone to, you know, workshops? Um, have you read books? I mean, one lunchtime webinar, that's not going to make you culturally competent. It's got to be some ongoing work. And things are changing all the time. So you have to stay on top of things. Uh, and and uh, if you're not doing that, you're already, like, not qualified to work with people of color competently. And then the next question is, have you done your own anti-racism work? So all of us are steeped in this environment where we're constantly bombarded with, with racist messages. And if you're not doing anything to actively counter that, then you're ingesting it. And you're ingesting it, and you're regurgitating it, and it's coming out as microaggressions. So. Um, I would say do your own anti-racism work. And then I ask, would ask people like, how would you assess yourself just in terms of your own bias against people of color? And one really um, helpful exercise that I often will give to my graduate students is to make a map, a friendship map of every, anybody you would go to if you needed help. And on the map, look at all the different dimensions of diversity for those people. Um, if you discover your map is almost all white people, that's a pretty good indication that you've got some bias and you're not, you're not learning and growing from people with different perspectives. You're in an echo chamber. So, uh, so I've had students do this exercise and they find it really enlightening. You know, I've, I've had students, you know, confused, <laughs> crying, <laughs> like, why are all my friends white? <laughs> I said, don't worry about it. You're not the only one. This is common. This is good that you're recognizing it. I've even had client. I've even had uh, students of color say like, or, or or LGBTQ students notice that they've had deficiencies in their friendship map too that they've wanted to rectify. I had one student who's like, 
I just realized that all of my friends are atheists, you know, and, and that person kind of related it back to sort of their own wounding around religious issues when they were young, but, but at the same time, they were missing that important component of diversity in their lives. So, uh, so I would say that's like a good start to um, kind of just do a self-diagnostic. And then, then some basic practical skills. Can you do a culturally informed case conceptualization? Um, you know, can you comfortably have conversations with other people about, about racial topics, about racially charged topics, about controversial topics? I mean, if you think about it, as therapists, we're asking people sensitive questions all the time. We're asking them questions about, you know, like sex and if they want to kill themselves and if they've molested children, right? <laughs> like we ask them these questions, like, but it's amazing how many therapists are like, oh, I can't ask them about experiences of racism. Well, yeah, you can just do it. Yeah. I, it's, I think I love the way you started this. You said, I think you said a fearless self-assessment. There is something about this that it's like, you've got to have some courage here, people, you know, I mean, I'm talking about myself too, right? But it's like, you've got to go, you've got to take an honest look at what's happening. You have to go into these places that you may have been kind of conditioned not to go near. Um, but exactly. you have to do that if you're going to be able to do this. Wow. Exactly, exactly. And I think that this is where sometimes our training lets us down because it's hard to talk to people about sex or suicide or abuse, but we learn to do it because we have to. Right. Like you, you couldn't graduate from a program if you couldn't ask somebody about thoughts about suicide. And that's uncomfortable. But nobody's holding holding students accountable to being able to talk to clients about race, ethnicity and culture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate I think that's why that's. It, this movement that's happening right now is important. And I appreciate you doing your part to kind of speak out within the field and, and more um, generally about these kinds of things. Cause it helps even just listening to podcasts like this and doing reading. It's all a step in the right direction. So thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Glad um, to do it. Um, what recommendations would you have for either listeners who have experienced microaggressions themselves or who want to be helpful to, say, a therapist wants to be um, helpful to a client who's experienced microaggressions in terms of how to respond? Like, do they say something or not say something? What are your thoughts around that? Yeah. So, um, so when a client talks about microaggressions they've experienced, uh, the therapist should always, like, believe them and uh, show sympathy and support and validate them. Um, I think it's very tempting in a CBT framework to start doing some questioning around their experiences of microaggressions. And this is absolutely the last thing that a person needs who's experienced a microaggression because they've already experienced a lot of invalidation. They've already questioned themselves. And they're bringing it up because they've thought about it a lot and they think it might be a real thing. And so the therapist's job is to validate that. Right. It's not to challenge that thought as you might do in a traditional CBT model. It's like, no, no, you just validate. Yeah. Right. Like if a person came and said they'd been raped, you wouldn't like ask them 20 questions to see if they had really been raped. You would believe them, right? Yeah. 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 So same thing, you know, um, you're going to believe them and, uh, and support them. Okay. And then what about the decision to, for the person who's been, you know, received the microaggression to speak out or not? What are your thoughts around that? 
Well, this is a very, um, you know, this is a nuanced issue because we, you know, we know it can be helpful if the person can speak against the microaggression and bring about some positive change, but it's not always safe for them to do so. And that's why microaggressions are perpetuated because the person who experiences it is disempowered and you, and so you have to kind of weigh the risk of responding versus not responding. And here's where the therapist can be helpful in looking at uh, and weighing the, the options and looking at the potential consequences of responding versus not responding, determining if this is a safe situation to do so or if it's not or what other options there might be. Yeah, I think that's I, – I, I got – that was something I got out of your book that I found important is just that sense of safety. And I think – Sometimes I've heard some stories from my clients where there was a part of me that felt this sense of injustice and it was easy for me to kind of be like, you got to say something, you know, you have to, and it's, it's not always true because of even, you know, the psychological safety, even physical safety, even more so, but it's like, it's not always, and it, it, and it puts the responsibility on the person who is kind of the victim of it, if you think of it in that way. Right. It's not, it's totally not fair that the person who is the victim of the microaggression is put in a position where now they have to fix it. And, and I think that that's important to understand and underscore with clients, even though they may have to be the ones to do that. So, um, but if, but as a therapist, you want to make sure you understand and appreciate the cost before, you know, um, encouraging them to push back because if you don't understand the cost, they're they're not going to listen to you. you know? That's right. <laughs> so, and the the well being of the client or the person you know who received the microaggression is probably the most most important of all. Yeah. Right. Um, and and the person who received the microaggression, they may have other motivations for wanting to push back. Um, often they might say, well, you know, it's not about me, but I know that this person is hurting others and I don't want them to hurt other people. So I'm willing to put myself out there even at cost if it means that other people will be less likely to suffer. Yeah. I've had some gender-based conversations with, um, you know, psychology interns I've trained where there may be other psychologists who have had made some gender-based microaggressions toward them. And the conversation ends up being around like, um, on the one hand, it would be great to say something because the person could learn something from you. But on the other right. hand, you know, the person maybe is going to need a letter of recommendation or they're going to need to work with this person in the future. And it's a really, it can be just a really hard decision, I think, to, um, yes. you know, whether they say something or not. Yeah, exactly. And this is where I think um, the importance of allies um, is needs to be underscored because sometimes when people experience microaggressions, they're or often they're not empowered to do anything about it. But there may be allies who can do something about it, and um, and I think that that is really critical. So, like, let's say you know a trainee experiences a microaggression from a faculty member, maybe they're not in any position to do anything, but maybe there would be other faculty who would be allies who could go speak to that person and, um, and find a, a way to try to resolve things. Absolutely. Yeah. You can kind of help support them and, and keep them from having to be in that position when they are already like disempowered. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
So another line of work that you've been really involved in is around racial stress and trauma. And I'm just wondering if you could say, you know, you've done so much work on the impact of of racial trauma and on evidence-based practices. I'm just wondering, first of all, if we could start, if you could just tell us a little bit about what you've seen in your clinical work in terms of the psychological impact of racial trauma. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons uh, I became interested in microaggressions is because they can contribute to uh, racial trauma, which is basically... um, PTSD that results from experiences of racism. And, and it can be as, as a result of, you know, one very traumatic racist experience or more typically a combination of experiences that over time sort of um, erodes a person's ability to cope. And, and microaggressions sort of contribute to that. One of the things that we're learning about uh, PTSD is that it, it tends to be cumulative most people who experience a traumatic event don't develop PTSD. But what you find is with people with PTSD have typically had many traumas. And, um, you know, and at some point you just um, are stressed beyond your capacity to manage it. And, and you tip over from being highly stressed, being traumatized. And so we see the same thing with experiences of racism that they can um, accumulate and cause trauma to people. And so, uh, so that's one of the things that I study is is racial trauma, and we see that people have, you know, pretty much all the typical symptoms of PTSD, and um, but it it often is unrecognized as um, as a form of PTSD because people are people have in their mind like what a Criterion A event needs to look like for someone to have PTSD. Yeah, and I'm thinking of examples like what happened this summer, you know, with George George Floyd's murder and how that impacted people, even just, you know, people who saw the video or who just followed this in the news and people, Black people, especially people of color, how deeply impacted they were. You know, you might say, oh, well, that doesn't, you know, count as a traumatic event from the traditional DSM if you watch it, but it's like, but it's traumatic in the same sense, would you say? I would say so, because if you watch that video, you see a person murdered in front of your own eyes by powerful people who are supposed to be protecting the public, but you know at any moment they could come and harass or kill you as a person of color with no consequences, and here someone is just doing it on film because they're that calloused about it. They so believe that they're above the law, that they're going to slowly kill someone despite a whole crowd of people protesting, saying, stop, he can't breathe. Yeah, that was really traumatic. Yeah. So it's an example, yeah, of how racial trauma, it's so widespread and, and needs to be acknowledged. Yeah. My niece called me in the middle of the night having after having seen that video and she said like she couldn't sleep and she couldn't stop crying because she just couldn't understand why someone would do that to someone else um and every every black person i know has just felt exhausted um just you know from from that event yeah uh yeah i'm i'm curious you know when you think about traditional evidence-based approaches to post-traumatic stress disorder, which you are, you know, a 
renowned expert in this area. To me, it feels like there's some shortcomings when it comes to some of those approaches as they're traditionally done when they're applied to racial trauma, one of which is that racial trauma is ongoing. And I think often there's this assumption that it's like, a past, like a discrete past event that's over and done with, but with racial trauma, that's not the case. Um, how do you see, like, what what are your thoughts around providing effective evidence-based trauma treatments specifically for racial trauma? Yeah, well, I know that, you know, there's been some concern that's been raised. Well, can we effectively treat people for this if we're going to treat them and we're just going to throw them back into uh, a racist society? Um, because normally when you do PTSD treatment, for example, if somebody is experiencing domestic abuse, you would want them to get out of that before you would treat them for the trauma. But, you know, we can't really, you know, extricate people from the racist society, and it doesn't seem to be socially just to say, sorry, we can't treat you because we can't change society, so you're on your own. That doesn't seem right or fair. Um, so my hope is that by treating people, yes, it's true that we can't, you know, they're going to go back out to a racist civilization, but hopefully, um, like PTSD, a lot of times there are maladapt- maladaptive cognitions that maintain the trauma. There's avoidances um, that maintain it. Certainly, some of the avoidances may be adaptive, but oftentimes they've generalized to things that are that are not dangerous. So we're going to do the same kinds of treatment in that respect in terms of helping people think differently about themselves and the world and, um, and stop avoiding. But um, it might be different from, from treatment for traditional PTSD in that we're going to also spend a lot of time um, you know, validating, uh, validating them and their experience of racism. Um, they know that racism is not going to go away, but maybe they can find different ways of managing it when it does. Um, one of the most typical types of racial trauma I see is, that, is people who got traumatized in the workplace. And um, often they don't want to leave their jobs, um, not because they can't find another job, but because they don't want to let the haters win which I understand, and I hate letting haters win too, but I tell people, you know, look, as, as your therapist, my concern is your mental health above anything else, and this environment is toxic for you, and you need to get out of it. So part of it is going to be like strategizing um, an exit plan and finding a place where, yes, you're not going to be free from racism, but you don't need to be experiencing this level of it. Um, and also building up their support system around um, um, around uh, this so that they have more resources and coping for stressors as they come. So, you know, so I like for clients to have um, kind of a self-care plan that involves um, people they can talk to who are safe and supportive when issues of racism come up, um, options for them to get away and relax. And we have to think carefully about this too, because what might be relaxing for a white person might not be relaxing for a black person, you know? So I might want to, for my white clients, I might want to recommend they go to a yoga class for my black clients. They might not feel relaxed in a room full of white women. So I might think about something else that would be relaxing for them. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, I think this is something I've been kind of grappling with in my own work is like how to both validate the experience and help the person with their struggles, you know, to kind of help them move forward, you know, 
understand their emotional experience, move forward in whatever way they see fit. And sometimes it kind of feels like hard to, to walk that line between the two. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think it, I think it can be done. And, you know, I think with, with sort of with more practice and, and, and I think it helps to recognize that, you know, when we're working with, with racism, there's kind of an, a bunch of additional considerations that we need to pay attention to that, that wouldn't necessarily be the case for maybe, maybe some or most of the people that, that you might be seeing. Yeah. Well, and I think that I, I appreciate earlier in the conversation you mentioned doing anti-racism work and that kind of thing too, because it seems like as, you know, as mental health professionals, we are both working with the individual who's sitting in front of us, but we also do need to take a look at the bigger systemic issues that are playing a role here. And sometimes it feels a little like, what can I possibly do? It's so big. But I think if we all do what we can. Yeah, I think, I think psychologists are in a really good position potentially to bring about um, change in this area. Because if you think about it, you know, we're the ones that get all the, the training on people's behaviors and how to change behaviors and, and how people think about the world. I mean, if you think about it, most of, most of the country is run by lawyers, right? So I don't know how many lawyers you know, but... Quite a few. You know. <laughs> but if you think about it, is that, is that, are those the people you want shaping our society, right? Most, most psychologists, like if you ask them if they think they're qualified to run for public office, most of them will say no. They don't think they are, um, which I think is astounding because... I think we know far more about human behavior than than lawyers do, and we know how to understand research. So, uh, so I think we have a huge potential to make a difference in the world. Um, and you, you know, you might have heard of different types of training models for psychologists. Like I you know there's a scientist practitioner model. I, I know that there's some um, psychologists who are interested in 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 creating like a new model, which might be like a science practitioner activist model, uh, which I think is so much needed because I think we have the potential to be big agents for change. Yes. Well, thank you. Because I do think you're right. Like we have a, an understanding of this and a way of maybe having conversations about it that is unique and that we can maybe do more than we think we can toward exactly. affecting these bigger changes. Right. Because I mean, no matter how little you think you know as a psychologist, I guarantee you know more than a lawyer. So <laughs> about Good human point. behavior anyway. <laughs> yes, that is true. That is true. And that is reassuring. <laughs> well, Dr. Williams, I am so grateful again for the conversation today. I've learned a lot from your work and from this conversation, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. And how can people find you um, who, who want to learn more? It's super easy. They can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Dr. Monica with two N's, or you can go to my website, which is monicawilliams.com. And again, that's Monica with two N's. Great. And we will link to your information on the show notes for today's episode. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, and our interns, Katie Rothfelder and Melissa Miller. 
This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.